Good morning to all of you. Uh, welcome to our morning service. Uh, we continue our worship service by looking to the Word of God now. So if you have your Bibles, please take them and turn with me to Luke chapter 8, verse 26 through 39. Uh, Luke 8, 26 through 39. Okay? <clears throat> Luke 8, 26 through 39. We're just studying through the Gospel of Luke, and as uh, just a reminder for us where why we study Luke, uh, Luke is uh, one of the Gospels that just uh, uh, that uh, describe for us the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, and especially as followers of Jesus Christ. Um, these four books in the Gospels, and particularly the Gospel of Luke, show us uh, a very clear picture of our Savior, who is Jesus. Uh, if we are followers of Christ, then uh, what a, uh, there's no, uh, really no, no better place to turn to than these four Gospels, uh, Luke, uh, to learn about our Savior so that we might better follow him. Anyways, Luke 8, 26 to 39 is what will be today. And uh, the scripture is a longer one. I'll read it within the sermon. Uh, and... Uh, and so as we come to the word of God, just to, I'm going to pray one more time. Father, thank you for your word that we hear and that we read and that we, that, that we may teach it and exhort it today. Pray your spirit working uh, through uh, me, but working through especially uh, those who are hearers of your word. Let those who have ears to hear, hear what you have to say. Father, we pray that you would give us a clearer picture of Jesus, that we would know him, that we would live in light of him, and that we would uh, respond to his authority, uh, not only over supernatural forces of this world, but his authority over our lives as well. And we ask that you would be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. About a month ago, many of you, if you guys read news, I, just, uh, I, love, I follow a lot of kind of Christian news. Uh, you might have heard an a, a article about uh, the head of the Jesuit order. The Jesuit order is a, one of the Roman Catholic orders. And so it's a significant order because they focus on, a lot of times, they really focus on education. A lot of times, many of the Roman Catholic schools are, are, are led by these uh, priests or, or of the Jesuit order. So it was real striking when the very head of the Jesuit order, the guy, he's, he's in uh, the Vatican uh, there, uh, who made this very controversial statement. And the controversial statement was this. And he said that Satan, the devil, is not a real personal being. He's not a real person. But instead, he exists as a rather a symbolic reality. A symbol of, of evil that, that manifests in our life. And it's basically just a, an explanation for why oh, there is evil, why we do things. Not a personal being that's responsible, but basically an explanation for why we do evil. Well, we just call it Satan. That's the symbol of what we, who we are. Now, this was, of course, the symbol, doctrine of Satan. Uh, this is very aberrant. This is uh, some Roman Catholics, even Roman Catholics are saying, this is heretical. But this is a significant doctrine, the doctrine of, of Satan in the Roman Catholic Church. Because if Satan is symbolic, follow my logic here, if Satan is symbolic, and where do we think about where we first hear him in, in, in Genesis 3, then perhaps Adam and Eve and the fall of mankind is symbolic. And if the fall of mankind into sin is symbolic, then sin is symbolic, right? Because it didn't really happen. It's just a symbol. It's not a reality. We can even go further. If Satan is symbolic for evil, then perhaps God, who is, is simply a symbol for good, he's not a real person either. But what does the scripture say? When we look at the scriptures from the very first book of the Bible, we can look no, for, no farther than Genesis chapter 3, and we find the appearance of a serpent 
the one who is known as the devil, the Satan. And we see in particularly uh, after he te- after he tempts Adam and Eve to sin, God pronounces a curse upon the serpent. And we read Genesis three fifteen, and God says this to the serpent to Satan: "I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel." If you just take the straightforward uh, examination of this passage, you would understand, believe that God understands that the woman is a personal, real personal being, and therefore her enmity with uh, the serpent, must all, he also must be uh, a real personal being, at least according to God. What's more, God in this verse tells us that there's a continual hostility between Satan and the women between his followers and her followers. And one day, and the most important thing about this verse is that one day he promises that the seed of the woman, uh, he will one day strike a destructive blow. He will bruise the serpent on the head while that serpent will bruise the promised seed on the heel, striking a a non-fatal blow. This is the the promise of the gospel, the proto-evangelion. So if we take all of, and so if we really just say, well, if you take one, Satan is, is, is symbolic, then you have to take everything as symbolic. You can't just say, well, the woman's real, but Satan is symbolic here. Because God presents it just straightforwardly as a real event, historical event. If you take all of Genesis to be a symbolic, applying a, a distorted hermeneutic to the scripture when you don't read it with a straightforward uh, uh, meaning, then you may as well just take the whole Bible as symbolic. And if that's the case, then Really, none of this matters. We should just go watch football today. But I'm thankful that you're not going to go watch football today. Well, you can watch later. But the truth of the matter is, as you know, well, most of you here know, the scriptures tell us and reveal to us that Satan is real, a real personal being, not a symbol. And Satan is real. And what all, not only is Satan real, but the hostility continues, is real. And But praise God. The one who has authority over Satan or over these supernatural forces of evil, he, Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, is real. Our passage today shows us how Jesus has power and authority over the supernatural forces of evil, including Satan. There, and we want to understand, or we, as we read this text, we want to keep in mind, especially as the rest of the New Testament tells us, that there is this hostility that goes on. We call it spiritual warfare. There is a spiritual warfare, a spiritual battle that goes on in our lives, in the world. It's a battle that we cannot seek. That's why it's called spiritual. But it is a war, nevertheless. It's being fought in the souls of men and women. And the scriptures tell us, Ephesians 6, that we have been even given armor, a spiritual armor to put on for this war. Scripture describes for us that the devil is one like a lion who's prowling about, looking, seeking to devour someone. 1 Peter 5, 8. And though great is our enemy, greater is our general. And we see it evidenced in passages like today's. We are in that section of Luke that just, uh, that where Jesus demonstrates his power over and authority over the various forces in this world. Last week we saw Jesus commanding the wind and the waves, and they obeyed. This week we see how Jesus has the authority and power to command even the demons as well. So when so we look at this outline, we're going to just walk through this passage. We're going to see there's different responses to the authority of Jesus. We'll see three different responses to Jesus' authority over spiritual forces, 
that will encourage you and me, believers in Jesus Christ, in the spiritual battle that we fight. And so, hopefully this will be encouraging to you in your spiritual battle, that, would, uh, that you remember that there is a spiritual battle. You remember that the, the battle is real, Satan is real, but we also remember Jesus, who has accomplished the victory for us, and that victory is real. The strength that he gives us is real. So let's take a look at the first response. The first response to Jesus' power is seen in number in point number one, verses twenty six through thirty three. This is the bulk of the of the story, and that is we see in the response of the demons, the response of the demons themselves to the authority of Jesus. Now, just uh, for those of you who are kind of just new to the faith, demons uh, are basically fallen angels. Early in, before the history of man, uh, Satan had led a rebellion of the angels of God. God had created angels, and, and he led a one-third of all the angels in rebellion against God. And, and God cast them, cursed them, and they became demons. We call them demons today. So they're like angels, whereas angels are, uh, but the angels that did not fall remained faithful to God, holy. But there are these fallen angels, these demons who are wicked and evil, cursed waiting for a judgment one day uh, to be cast uh, when, when uh, the Lord sets forth that day of judgment that, comes, that is going to come, where he's going to just cast them all into the abyss. So we see then there's this, these demons, and they're active in our world uh, at this time, particularly because Satan is the god of this world, and he is active. And so they're active, and we see this, uh, this encounter between Jesus and this demoniac, this demon-possessed man. But uh, before we look at the response of demons, we want to look at the, first of all, verse 26, 27, the, the helplessness of this man that the demons are, have possessed. Verse 26, really a setting for us. Then they, that is Jesus and his disciples, sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. And when he came out into the land, he was met by a man from the city who was possessed with demons and who had not put on any clothing for a long time, was not living in a house but in the tombs. Here we find the setting, as you recall from our last passage, where Jesus uh, stilled the winds and the waves. They had just sw- sailed over the Sea of Galilee from, from primarily Jewish Galilee into primarily Gentile, uh, uh, this is the Decapolis area, the other side of the Sea of Galilee. They had just seen Jesus demonstrate his power over the natural forces of this world. And now they're about to see an equally awesome demonstration of the, Jesus' power over supernatural forces. Now they have arrived at the country of the Gerasenes. Uh, this is the Gerasa is, a, is, uh, is located somewhere near the, the middle of the, of the eastern shores of the sea. This was a Gentile territory. This was not a Jewish territory. There were Jewish people who lived there, but it was primarily a Gentile area. In verse 27, we understand we were introduced into this man who was possessed by these demons. As Jesus, he steps off the boat, immediately he is met by this man, this man who is demon-possessed. It says he has, he was possessed with demons. And he is in a sad and helpless state if you, as you, we look at him. First, we note that he was, uh, keep in mind there, there's a, that he was not always this way. He was, says here that he was met by a man from, this, from the city. So he was once a person who lived in the city, and in the city he lived with people. He lived with his, in his home. He lived with his family. He lived among his neighbors, among his co-workers, among his classmates, among his friends. He once had a life, but now no longer. He's now living in the tombs. He's now been possessed by demons. 
that the life he once had was a it was a, that he once had was was a long time ago. Now he had been possessed by demons for a, for a while. But notice that he's possessed not by a single demon. We've been we've encountered already in this book several times where Jesus exercises a demon from an individual. Now we see that there are multiple demons. We'll see how much in a little bit. He's controlled by these demons. He has a demon. Is literally what it uh, what it says. He has a demon. And to the extent that to this extent that these demons are inside him, controlling him, that he is no longer in his right mind. He's almost gone mad. He's a madman. In fact, I, it's interesting. I just came across a, a historical Christian book. You know, historical fiction. You know, you ever read those things? Some of those Christian authors just wrote a book called Madman. And it's, it's uh, I, I, I was so curious. I, I bought it and started reading it. But uh, because if you like historical fiction, uh, just written from the perspective of this individual, about this individual, this, this madman. So just FYI, uh, remember it's not the scriptures, but it's, if you would like to read. Anyways, we see this evidence. So he's out of his mind, he's controlled by his demons. And uh, first of all, you, knows, you know he's, he's mad because he's, he's not wearing any clothes. Generally, when somebody's running around without any clothes, you know that there's something wrong with him, with his mind. And that's clear. It's, his, it's most likely that he, the word is that he was without his outer garments. But if we kind of put together all the different passages, it's most likely he was naked. And that's what's more. Uh, this man was dwelling among the tombs. And in those rock cliffs along the Sea Galilee, there was uh, this particular town, there was kind of rock cliffs that goes, rises right up from the, the seashore. And there were like caves where they would have the tombs. And he was living in one of these caves, one of these tombs, one of these places where they placed their dead. To be among the dead, uh, especially in Jewish culture, was, an un- was considered unclean according to ceremonial law. Was it, however, that perhaps he was cast out by his own people? But we actually learn in verse 29, like, uh, in a little bit, that the demon would, would drive the man into the desert. That is the wilderness. It really it literally means the world, the, the lonely places. Although his own people had, who, sh- there's actually, they showed a care for him. They, they had tried to bind him, tried to control him. They tied him with chains and shackles. And they kept him under guard so that he would not hurt himself. <clears throat> but the demons would give him superhuman power. He would often break his bonds, and the demon would drive him into <clears throat> the desert or the wilderness. And so that's why it was the demon who drove him away from society, away from people, drove him to, to live out of his mind, without clothes, among the unclean, among the rotting, decomposing bodies of the dead. And that's the devastation that the demons wanted, uh, de- worked upon this man's life. Mark's, uh, when we look, turn to the Gospel of Mark, Mark's account further reveals to us that the demon actually caused him to hurt himself. Mark chapter 5, verse 5 is a, is a, a, a verse you can look up. He constantly, night and day, he was, he was running around screaming. So you can just imagine, his screaming, was, why was he screaming? Was, was it the agony, perhaps? And then he was cutting himself with stones found among the tombs. And you kind of wonder, was, was the demons causing him to cut himself, or was it he was... There was part of him that was still somewhat aware that there was something inside of him, and to try, he maybe he wanted to cut himself just to, to get rid of the voices, get rid of the the things that are inside of him. Hmm. 
His body must have been covered with blood, scars, infections. And this was a man, this was a man in a helpless condition. No control of his body and mind, no home, no clothing, no peace, no hope of deliverance. And he, along with the people of his village, his city, were, were helpless against the demons that were possessing this man. The power of the demons was great. But in the presence of a greater power, we see the demons shudder. We see them respond in fear. But I want to, before I even get to the, the response of the demons, which will be the next uh, point, before we move, I want to just take time. We read these passages, and we're like, wow, this is, this is really foreign to what you and I experience today. And we may ask ourselves, do, can believers, can Christians, there is, in the spiritual battle, can we become possessed by demons? You ever wonder that? Because you read about it. Is it possible that we could be possessed somehow and requiring Jesus to cast out the demons of our lives? Well, some of you, are, uh, if you've been a long-time Christian, may have heard or learned that <clears throat> Christians, the answer is that Christians cannot be demon-possessed. And one of the most common answers given is that, and the legitimate answer is this, because our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. That means the Holy Spirit dwells within us. And so it would be a contradiction that to say that the Holy Spirit dwells within us and Satan also dwells within us. Because greater is he who is in us, First John, than he who is in the world. So, there, so just having the, as believers in Jesus Christ, having the Holy Spirit in us, and, Jesus, and God, the whole God is more powerful than Satan, it would, it would be a contradiction or it just be, wouldn't make any sense where a demon could enter into the place where Holy Spirit dwells. However, while people may concede that, there are some Christians, some schol- Christian scholars even, it was popular back in about 20 years ago when, uh, when I was a seminary student, and there's still a sprinkling of it today even, that there's a, there's a certain amount of Christians that believe that, that while a Christian cannot be demon-possessed, a Christian can be demonized. And maybe some of you have heard the term, demonized. They just basically took one of the words in the, in the New Testament, daimonizomai, and they transliterated and they said, well, this word, whenever it appears, it really means demonized. It's not demon possession. It's not the same as has a demon, but it's actually describing something else. It describes how a Christian, even the Christians, can be demonized. They can be so influenced, so controlled by demons. They're, they're outside, but they're, they, they have such power over our lives that we really can't help do what we do. And, and kind of just following through with this belief, there becomes a whole ministry we call it deliverance, or it's called a deliverance ministry, where people will basically help people who feel like they have a demon inside them, Christians, are basically finding out the name of the demon. So identify the name of the demon, whatever it is. Talk to the demon if you have to. Identify it and say, oh, I have the demon of lust. And so therefore, and then command and talk to the demon. Say, the demon of lust, or if they, you know, come out and they actually tell you the name, my name is Charlie. Then you say, Charlie... I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to leave. And, you know, well, I mean, of course, there's a little more to it, you know, seven steps or so. Um, and so we call it. And so uh, is that a possibility? This is what is believed by some. It's called the demonization of the believer. <clears throat> but when we look at scriptures, and um, there, this is not something that's taught anywhere in scripture. First of all, the word translated demonized in the New Testament 
is a synonym for demon possession. Wherever you find it, you'll find it in passages where it is also, where it describes a situation where someone has a demon inside of them. That's why we, or oftentimes those passages, Jesus will say, Jesus cast out the demon. He didn't just say, why well, I sent the demon away. He cast them out of the person. So the, the demon is inside that individual, even though the word is used as demonized. There's always your first demon possessions. Secondly, when we look at all the uses of demonized in the New Testament, every single one of them, none of the situations describe a believer in Jesus Christ. Okay? None of them. They are always descriptions of people who don't know Christ, who are not yet saved. But because of encounter with Jesus, they will get saved. Right? So that's important to know. Thirdly, uh, passages like 1 John 5, 18, uh, and, uh, as well as 1 Corinthians 6, 8, 6, uh, 19, our passage described for us, uh, we already mentioned 1 Corinthians 19, 1, Corinthians, 1 John 5, 18, that no one can touch the believer. The evil one does not touch the believer in Jesus Christ. Now, um, fourthly, Scripture does not call us uh, to rebuke demons. So this whole, this whole ministry of uh, casting out demons, identifying the name, is, is foreign to the Scriptures. It's not what we are to do. Um, we don't, we're not called to rebuke demons or cast them out. Rather, we are to, as scriptures tell us, uh, consistently, wherever we find a passage about our spiritual battle, the most common response in the battle that we are told to do is resist. Resist. So first, whether it's James 4, 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Uh, <clears throat> and verse, uh, first, uh, Peter 5, 8, 9, where it talks about the devil roaring around like, prowling around like a roaring lion. Verse 9 says, but resist him firm in your faith. We are to resist because we, we think that the demonic, when we think of uh, the spiritual battle, we think, oh, maybe, you know, we think like the Hollywood movies where, you know, <laughs> there's going to be some manifestation of the devil. Maybe we're going to like, we're going to be like, oh, we're going to be possessed or something like that. And then we're, <clears throat> but the spiritual battle that you and I face is for our souls, for the souls of men and women that we're reaching for the gospel. We're saying that God of this world has blinded their eyes so they would not see the, the light of the truth of the glory of Jesus Christ. But there's also a battle where Satan and his forces bring about temptations. They'll bring about trials in our life. They can cause things, all external things, things on the outside. That's what temptations are. Temptations are external things. They may tempt us to doubt God, to lose our faith, to not lose our faith, but to, to uh, have our faith weakened in God. That's the spiritual battle. So we are to put on the whole armor of God that God gives us, the, the confidence that we have in our salvation, Jesus Christ, and we are to resist the, uh, the, the fiery darts of the, of, the, of the evil one and stand firm in the faith that we have, our trust in the Lord. We see in verse 28, 31, then the fear of the demons. We'll move on now. The fear of the demons. <clears throat> Seeing uh, verse 28, 31. Seeing Jesus, he cried out and fell before him and said in a loud voice, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for it had seized him many times, and he was bound with chains and shackles and kept under guard. And yet he would break his bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. They were imploring him to not to command them to go away into the abyss. Now, the demon that possessed the man, or the demons, recognized Jesus immediately. Jesus comes across and he gets out of the boat. Remember, he's met by this man right away. 
It's almost like he says, and he, he knows the authority that's represented in Jesus. And he runs to Jesus. And he knows, he acknowledges Jesus as for who he is. He is the son of the most high God. This demon has pure doctrine in this, at this point than most of Israel. He knew that Jesus had power to cast him out. He knew that Jesus had power to torment him, to cast him into the abyss. And so he runs, he falls before him. Notice, act of submission. He's, he's, and he's not, though he's not bowing down in true worship, he's, it's a bowing down in, in homage as one recognizing a superior, someone who has authority over him. And he bows down, and, and as Jesus is calling the, this, the demon to come out of the man, the demon responds with this phrase, I implore you, do not torment me. He, knows, he is afraid that if he's going to be cast out of this man, God, he's going to be sent straight into a place of torment. Matthew, in fact, in Matthew 8.29, the parallel records, the unclean spirit is saying, have you come here to torment us before the time? That's a clue to us. And the demons understand that there is a point in time for all demons to be tormented by Jesus. It's just like we understand that there's a day one day where Jesus will return, a day of judgment where he will judge the whole world. But here's the, there is also a day where he will judge the demons. This demon knows that he's doomed. He knows that he has no hope. He's just doing as much destruction as he can until the day of the torment, the time of torment. And here... When he sees Jesus come, he's afraid that the day has come. And the day, that moment has come. He's, he says, have you come to torment us? They were imploring Jesus not to command them to go away into the abyss. The abyss, by the way, is the place where unbelieving men and women go upon their death. It's the, also the destiny, the, the place where the devil is, will end up in Revelation, according to Revelation 20, verse 3. Here is a demon begging Jesus not to send them into the abyss. But it's even more amazing when we come to realize that this it's not just one demon that's begging Jesus of this, but it's many. Verse 30 to 31, right? Why Jesus asked the demon his name, but we don't really know why Jesus does this. Why does he ask him his name? It's not wasn't a normal part of the an exorcism procedure. It's not what Jesus had done before. Most likely it was just simply to reveal to those who are witnessing the herdsmen, his disciples, his 12 disciples, uh, the extent of this man's plight, the extent of the demonic power that was represented in, in this one, uh, one uh, demon-possessed man. He's not just possessed by one man, but he says his name is Legion. A legion in Roman... Uh, Roman military, a legion was a, a, a troop of 6,000 men. It would be give or take, you know, um, several. Or sometimes it would be a little less than th- that. It could be several thousand less even. But this demon-possessed man was helpless because he was indwelt by a great amount of demons. It's thousands of demons begging of Jesus, do not torment us. Do not torment us. And so we, then we move on. The obedience of the demons. So the response is that they, they, they come down and respond in fear. And they, they beg him to, to not torment him. But notice the, the obedience of the demons, verse 22 to 33. Now, there were a herd of many swine feeding there on the mountain. The demons implored him to permit them to enter the swine. And he gave them permission. And the demons came out of the man and entered the swine. And the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. 
And in these verses, we find that the demons are so desperate to find a way out of being sent into the abyss that they look for another way out. And they know that they must obey Jesus' command, so they beg of Jesus to permit them to enter into this herd of pigs, the swine that were feeding on the mountain, some 2,000 of them, as as, uh, Mark would tell us. The demons uh, do not, seem to not want, uh, would rather possess the, the physical body of a pig than to not have any corporeal body to possess. And so he gave them permission. It says, Jesus gave them permission. They had to ask, and Jesus had to give them permission. Uh, verse 33 then tells us what happens. Uh, Mark tells us these 2,000 pigs. By allowing them, these demons, to leave the man and then enter into the swine, the witnesses are, are all of a sudden given a very vivid picture of the, of the number of these demons. It's not, just, it's not just one pig that's running around crazy. It's 2,000 pigs running mad. Whereas there was once a one madman, now there are 2,000 mad pigs. You know, that's, if it, was not be, it would be almost comical if it were not for the tragedy of 2,000 animals. Because of the, all of a sudden they're possessed by demons and they know that this is not unnatural. They, they go mad and they just run off to get rid of, in a sense, in maybe in an effort to get rid of the demons, they just run right off the cliff to their death. They drown. There's a, a mad rush into the waters. But the important thing for us to notice in this section is the submission of the demons to Jesus. They had to ask Jesus for permission to enter the the swine. And only when he permitted them did they then leave and enter the pigs. See, Jesus commands the demons and they obey. The demons, as we learn from this passage, is responsibly that they obey Jesus. But they they obey Jesus out of fear. There's a whole different response among the people of the land compared to uh, the de- response of the demons. In verse 34 to 37, we learn about the response of the Gerasenes. These were the people of the land, and uh, the people who lived in, around the, the, the town and the city of Gersa. Uh, verse 34, 37, we'll read the whole text. So let's listen to what happens with the, to the people of the land. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they ran away and reported in the city and out in the country. The people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demon had gone out, sitting down at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they became frightened. Those who had seen it reported to them how the man who was demon-possessed had been made well, and all the people of the country of the Gerasenes and the surrounding district asked him to leave them. For they were gripped with great fear, and he got into a boat and returned. The men who were responsible for herding the pigs, the, the, the pig herders, they ran off because they had seen, they witnessed all this, and they, they ran off into the city as well as in the surrounding countryside to tell people what had happened. And so, of course, the curiosity of people, to, these are, this is probably amazing, this is 2,000 pigs is a lot of pigs, so is one of the major industries was basically destroyed overnight. They had to go see this, this strange thing that have, took place. They came and they saw, it tells us that they saw Jesus. And the curious thing, they saw Jesus, and then they saw the man whom they knew, the demon-possessed man. But now he was delivered from his demon possession. Instead of running around crazily, he's now seated down. Instead of being naked, he's clothed. 
Instead of being out of his mind, he's in his right mind. There was a clear contrast in his disposition, in his appearance, in his character. They saw that difference and they became frightened, it says. They were fearful, not of the man, but of Jesus. They had remembered, they knew the power that was manifested in that man. And now, because of this man who was standing next to him, that demons were gone. What kind of great power must have been represented in this man, Jesus, standing next to him for, this, for those, the powerful demons to have been completely cast away? There was something about this one who had come from across the sea. Someone with great power was in their midst and they were afraid. Verse 36, the people wanted to know what happened. So the herdsmen and perhaps even the disciples been explaining how the demon-possessed man had been delivered from the demons and how they went into the swine and then were destroyed. At first, the people of the city were listening probably intently in awe, like just as any, because it's a compelling story. But as you can just see them, as soon as they hear the details of how the man was saved and how he was delivered, their attitude changes. Their curiosity is now completely overwhelmed by fear. Now, their fear should have been motivated them to spend more time with Jesus, to, to get to know who he is, to hear why he's come. But instead, verse 37, we see this curious response, an unusual response, but yet maybe understandable. They asked him to leave them, is what this says, right? Here is Jesus who delivered their, their brother, their friend, their, their fellow citizen, someone, their neighbor, their classmate, perhaps their husband, their father, their son. And here they are saying, and this, it's because of this man. And they say, well, please leave us. If someone delivered your loved one from a great harm, you, the natural response would be, well, please come in my house. Let me share with you, take you out to meal. Let me take you out to Moonstar. Well, I want to treat you out to Asian buffet. Or whatever your restaurant choice is. But here they say, no, please leave us. Why? Well, it doesn't say explicitly, but it has to do something with the explanation of how this man was, was delivered. They're gripped with great fear. See, the salvation of the demon-possessed man was great. But for the Gerasenes, the loss of the herd of swines was greater. They were afraid of, of what more could be lost if, if Jesus remained among them. The Gerasenes saw their loss, and they were afraid that this man would cause them more loss. And so they asked Jesus to leave. Kind of a sad state in the sense that they loved their things more than they Love Jesus. They wanted their things back. They wanted to keep their things more than they want Jesus. They should have asked him to stay. They could have brought him all of their sick, their, their disease, their demon-possessed to be healed. They could have heard, these Gentiles could have heard the very words about how they might enter into the kingdom of God. But the reality is they loved their wealth more than they loved uh, Salvation. And the Gerasenes, in response, basically reject Jesus. Whereas the demons obey Jesus out of fear, the Gerasenes reject Jesus out of fear. 
And if we take time to think about it, meditate upon this, we can probably find some application. Because we could find this similar attitude in our own lives. Do we love our things more than we love Jesus? Because when we love our things more than we love Jesus, then we don't want to get close to Jesus. Because when we get close to Jesus, Jesus will ask us to give up all our things and love him more than all of it. All our people, all our family, all our possessions. He will tell the those. He'll tell. He'll tell us if you anyone who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of my kingdom. He'll tell the rich young ruler to, to go and sell everything that you have and come follow me. Jesus knows in each case what we love more than him, and but when we come to Jesus, Jesus will call us to be willing, and if needed, to give up the things in this world, the things of this life that we love, that we're holding on to. We must be willing to leave, leave them all for Jesus. And you might be thinking that I believe in Jesus and all, but losing everything to follow him, follow him is, is not what I'm here for. And you're afraid of losing your possessions and your earthly treasures. And I understand. There are times I am too. Especially when uh, we have loved ones in our lives. But if it's keeping you from following Jesus, then you are responding like the garrisons. You're essentially keeping Jesus at arm's distance. Not willing to follow. I'm willing to follow you this far, Jesus, but I'm not willing to go all the way. Don't live your life like the garrisons. Do not let your fear lead you to essentially reject him. So in contrast then to the response of the Gerasenes, Jesus' power from evil produced an overwhelming gratitude in one individual, the man who was delivered. This is our third response. The third response in this passage to the authority of Jesus over supernatural force of evil is the response of the man. Verse 38 to 39, the last two verses of our text. But the man from whom the demons had gone out was begging him that he might accompany him. But he sent him away, saying, Return to your house and describe what great things God has done for you. So he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. It's just a complete contrast, a complete irony here, you know. Uh, The demons were begging him to not not let, to not cast them out. Here he's begging him to, Oh, to, to, and it's similar to not cast him away too. He wants to go with, but he wants to go with Jesus. He's begging, pleading him. He responds in the, in the desire to follow Jesus wherever he goes. He wants to be with him. This phrase is significant in the gospel. In the gospel, Luke, uh, in fact, or <clears throat> significant in the gospels. I'm sorry. In Mark chapter 3, verse 14, it is used, this phrase, to be with him, is described to the relationship that the 12 have with Jesus. He called, he set appointed 12 apostles so that they might be with him. So this really, this man is just saying, I want to be with you. I want to be like your disciples. I want to be like one of your apostles. He was willing to follow Jesus to the ends of the earth because he had been delivered from such a great, uh, a, a great uh, sin and uh, uh, evil. 
He had the, and surely you think, boy, here's a person wanting to follow Jesus. You think Jesus would say, well, okay, yeah, come on. You, I see you got the right motivation. I see you got strong passion. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, come on, because you're the kind of people exactly I want with me on my team, right? You would pick people like this, right? They, you'd hope, you know. That's the kind of people because they've been delivered great. These are wherever he, you just imagine wherever he goes, Jesus wouldn't be before he said, "I like to have, uh, I like to have a friend now, just basically tell you his testimony." And he just tells you, "Yeah, I, I was possessed by six thousand or a legion of demons, and uh, Jesus delivered me." You know, they're just people would sign up, or they they probably wouldn't, but because of our sinfulness. But it would be a powerful testimony. It would be a great testimony to the glory and the power of Jesus. But sadly, interestingly. Jesus rejected his requests. The Gerasenes had rejected Jesus. Now Jesus rejects this man, in a sense. He tells him that no, he, he doesn't, he cannot come with him. He sends him away. Now, why? Well, Scripture doesn't give us any uh, answer explicitly. But probably because the Gerasenes had asked Jesus to depart, to leave them, Jesus now sends this man back home to his fellow garrisons as a witness of Jesus. Despite this man's begging, Jesus tells him to go home. Go home. Jesus knew that this new follower would best serve him by going home to his people and telling them the great things that God has done for him. <laughs> this phrase, go home, by the way, just reminds me of sem- uh, in seminary, uh, one, of our, one of our favorite professors, he would always give a kind of chapel message where he basically, the main point of his message was, uh, and I don't remember the text anymore, but he would always tell, go home, go home, because people go to seminary, and then they think, oh, it's like a, it's like a Christian, you know, uh, like heaven on earth there, you know, and around in seminary, and you just want to stay there, just like, and nobody, nobody would go home, but he says, you all need to go home, why? The point is that there are people that you have been saved, that you have been, that you have come to know, that you have a, a relationship with, that you are, have, are more equipped, more qualified to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with, to share the glories of Christ with. So go home. You know, sometimes we, the home is the last place where we, we're effective in sharing the gospel, especially when we're young Christians, because there's all that baggage, sin, you know, broken relations. But as God transforms you, as he's making that change in life, the home is the most powerful place you can make an impact for Jesus. Those people who know you, those people who love you, they see that you, they, they know that you're not perfect. They understand that, oh, Christians aren't perfect. You make that real clear. Christians aren't perfect. But I tell you what, Jesus, I'm not perfect, but I know that Jesus Christ delivered me from my sin. That's what he, Jesus was telling this man to do. Go home and tell your people, his people, about Jesus. And the man obeyed Jesus' command. He obeyed Jesus out of love. He didn't stop there, by the way, in his home. He told the whole city, but he didn't stop there either. Mark's account tells us that he proclaimed the greatness of God all throughout the Decapolis. These are the 10 different Greek cities or Gentile cities on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. It was the whole region. The man had experienced the power of Jesus in his life and he responded by telling others of how Jesus delivered him. And so, brothers and sisters, I just simply ask you, have you experienced the power of Jesus in your life? And if you have, then Jesus will simply say, go home and tell them about the great things that God has done for you. That's the, that just preaches itself. I'm like, what's the application of that? Mm. Mm. Oh, let's go home and tell people what Jesus has done for us. It's real simple. Sometimes we think, oh, I got to learn the four spiritual laws. I got to learn the Romans road. I got to learn the one verse evangelism. I got to learn the bridge illustration. I can, I can memorize my EE or DE evangelism outline. 
You don't have to learn all that. Just go home and tell people what Jesus has done for you. I knew I was a sinner, and then I learned that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And I was feeling distressed or discouraged by my sin, and I learned that Jesus died for my sins. And I believed in him because he died for me. And and then you can tell them. If there's anything that's that's a result of that. Is there some peace that you've experienced? Is is there some trial that he's helped you through? Is there a greater purpose that he's given you? Is there uh, some help in the in the in the midst of difficulties is a light in when you're in your darkest moments that you experience with, with jesus in your at your side glorify god and leave the response to your testament to the lord but simply start by telling people what god what jesus has done for you and you can try and you can just believe it if jesus sends you wherever he sends you then he will use you there he will work through you but you and i we need to be faithful to tell others. We need to open our mouths. And that's the response of humans. Do we do it out of love? The demons obeyed Jesus out of fear. The Gerasenes rejected Jesus out of fear. But the man obeys Jesus out of a love, a thankful heart. And I think which one, if you just look at these categories, how do you respond to the authority of Jesus Christ? How, do you, how will you respond to the, Jesus' power over supernatural forces? He has authority over all evil in this world. How do we respond? We respond, I trust, like the man. We obey Jesus. We, follow, we desire to follow Jesus. We're not out of fear, not because he's going to punish us, but out of love, out of thankfulness. The story of Jesus' encounter with this demon-possessed man illustrates for us Jesus' absolute power over the supernatural forces of all evil, of evil. Let's not make the mistake of thinking that Satan is merely a symbol. But he is real. His demons are real. The spiritual battle is real. But you and I don't have to be afraid because Jesus is real. He has delivered us from sin. And he is able to deliver you and us from anything that Satan and his forces bring our way. Every fiery dart, every temptation. So what is your response? How will you respond to the word of God? How we respond to the authority of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this, this picture of Jesus' power. And the Lord, we, this, this description is a description of a, an event, that, of a circumstance that is so foreign even in our Western world today. But yet, Lord, we know your scripture does not lie. We hear from saints around the world and, and other, and other uh, nations of the activity of Satan, of his forces. And Lord, we, are, we, know, we thank you that you have provided for us everything that we need in Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, for the armor that you place in us. We thank you, Father, for the, uh, the, uh, the, the sword of the spirit that you give us to, and the shield of faith, the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth and so on. We thank you, Lord, that you enable us so that we might wear them to defend ourselves, to resist against the, the, the attacks of the evil one, that you enable us through dependence upon you to stand firm in our faith when Satan casts his, the, those trial, brings those trials into our life or, or casts those, uh, those, brings those temptations across our path that cause us to doubt our, uh, you to doubt your, your goodness, to doubt our, that, that you have power to deliver us. 
And Father, in those times, cause us to remember this today's scripture, the truth that Jesus has authority, has power over the demons. He commands them, and yes, even they obey. And so, Lord, the ones whom uh, the ones who, sh- who shudder, who have the correct doctrine, even, about who Jesus is, who must obey him, who fear him, or they, uh, their response is uh, even an encouragement to us that we would, we who know you, respond in obedience in a similar way. Not out of fear, though, but out of love because of the hope that you have given us, the deliverance from sin that we have in Christ. And uh, Lord, if there is anyone here who is wrestling with uh, in the spiritual battle, uh, we pray that you would cause them to look to you, look to your son. Resist, put on the armor, stand firm, to be sober in spirit. Father, that you would deliver them from the temptations and the darts of the evil one. Lord, we thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you for how he died in our place. We thank you, Father, for your great love in in sending him to this world. Thank you, Father, for sending us out in the name of your Son. Help us to be faithful, to tell others about what you have done in our lives through Jesus. In his name we pray.